the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Are you ready for Christmas, church family? It's December 1st. The kids are ready. How about the rest of you guys? Now, i got to be honest with you. I came to the first service, and I found out quickly it was the Grinch service because they were nobody ready for Christmas at 9 a.m. But I'm kind of hoping you all a little bit better. Thanksgiving is full week in some way, so hopefully you're in the Christmas spirit. I'm super grateful for uh, our decorating committee, uh, Terry um, and her friends who uh, have uh, made uh, our campus very festive. We're super grateful for that. Thankful. Yes. On a personal note, thank you, because my kids have been uh, giving me dirty looks since Thanksgiving because <laughs> they're like, when are we going to put the tree up? And we haven't done it yet at home. Uh, so when I got in, I just got more of that. So thank you, Terry, because they're like, see, even the church. <laughs> um, but to be honest, I do love Christmas. The one thing that I'm, having, I'm struggling with, and maybe you are too, and why I hope it's not a full Grinch, Chris, full Grinch service here, maybe half Grinch, uh, is that um, it came so fast, right? Because the older we get, the faster time seems to go, and it just, it's, it's December. But I do love Christmas. Who loves Christmas? Come on. Who loves Christmas? I do love Christmas. I love the season. And one of the things that I love about the season is um, the traditions, the things that we get to do. Um, my kids look forward to certain traditions that we have in our family, the get-togethers, the special dishes. Maybe you do in your family as well. But one of my favorite traditions is telling a story. We're having the story be told, the greatest story, the story of Jesus' birth. In our small group conversations, we've been uncovering each little passage week by week. Today, we spoke about Simeon after Jesus' birth, but a couple weeks ago, we read about Joseph. And this, this, this scripture here comes from the book of Matthew, and it's when the angel appears to Joseph and makes this, this beautiful this pronouncement. And the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Okay, you got to say with it, which means... God with us. Thank you, thank you. This is participation hour, which means God with us. I love that because what we celebrate and what we celebrated all across the world in this Christmas season is the arrival of the baby boy, the Jesus child, who comes and in a physical expression becomes God with us. It's what has brought joy to the hearts of millions of people throughout time and continues to do so even in this present non-secular world. The idea that something beautiful is happening between the heavens and us. God is coming to be with us. I love it. I love the songs that go. Uh, I love listening to the Handel's Messiah. I love the songs that we will sing. Now, we weren't quite sure this being the first if we should go Christmas all, but for the next four weeks, it's going to be all Christmas songs here on our campus. So if you like Christmas music, come next week. We've got a full slate of, you know, uh, joy to the worlds, and etc. <laughs> We're excited about it, and um, we love Christmas season because it's our chance, it's our chance to lay claim to our identity. It's our chance, as the world looks in, and as Paul mentioned, take stock to tell them and retell them the greatest story, that God wants to be with us. I'm also super excited because I'm beginning a new series today, and it will last for the rest of the month, entitled God With Us. I'm excited about this because I, I've been dreaming about having this conversation. Now you guys are thinking, what are you talking about? See, most of us think that this idea of God being with us starts there at the birth. 
that the term, the phrase Emmanuel, that God's desire to be with us begins when Jesus arrives, but it's so not the beginning. In fact, the arrival of Jesus isn't in the beginning or not even in the middle. It's just part of a story that goes way back to the very beginning. And in my opinion, there's no better way to tell this story than through the imagery, the message, and the symbolism of the sanctuary. Now, when I say that word, some of you guys are like, what does that mean? What are you talking about? Because you came here today, maybe you're like, oh, it's Christmas. I'm going to go to church, see what's happening, see what they're doing for Christmas. But you're going to get a sermon on the sanctuary. Now, when I say sanctuary, most of you guys are like, uh-uh, what are we talking about? So let's see it. According to the dictionary, or the wiktionary, or wherever it is you look online, sanctuary, uh, you probably can't see it, but uh, it spells sanctuary. Uh, sanctuary. It's a word that comes uh, from ancient times. It's actually, our English translation is a derivative of the Latin. Can you see? It's kind of blurry there. The Latin sanctus, which means holy. Yes. Eventually that became uh, extended form uh, in Latin sanctuarium and all French sanctuary, eventually to Middle English, which is what we use uh, as sanctuary with the Y, sanctuary. And if you read there, if you can read, if you get like great vision, you'll see that um, in the dictionary they have three meanings. And the first one says this, a place of refuge, a harbor, a haven, perhaps a nature reserve, like a bird sanctuary, and last, at least in this, uh, in this site, a holy place, a temple of a church, the inmost recess or holiest part of the temple of a church. And if you read down in the small scripture, it says that essentially these first two definitions came from the third definition. You've probably heard this term in recent times in the phrase sanctuary cities, right? With the uh, immigrant and immigration conversation we're having, especially here in our neck of the woods, the idea that there are sanctuary cities where people uh, can have safe harbor, protection for cer from certain things. It's a common expression now. It's, it's not even a, a, a sacred or Christian thing, the idea of sanctuary, because it means a place of refuge, somewhere where it's safe. But where does that come from? Where does that idea begin? Did you know that in many places throughout time, uh, the laws of the land made it so that someone who was inside a church, a temple, a sanctuary, was immune from uh, being arrested. That they could not, um, authorities could not come inside a church to uh, arrest someone and take them prisoner. Uh, and although this rule, this law doesn't apply everywhere, it's still alive in certain places. Check this out. This was just published this week. A Dutch church in the Netherlands is holding an ongoing service to protect a refugee family from deportation. On October 26, a worship service began uh, in a Dutch city in the Netherlands for a family. Turns out there's an Armenian family that's been living in the Netherlands since 2009. But after living there for about nine years, uh, authorities began to um, pursue deportation proceedings. So they sought refuge in a local church. They needed a place to hide while they were applying for asylum. Thing is, while they were inside this church, they were not immune from prosecution, from being processed and then taken uh, for deportation. Unless, according to Dutch law, in the church, prayers were being offered. Worship was taking place. So on October 26, 
a worship service started in this small church. This is it right there. And uh, members from the community, not just from this church, from various different churches, began offering prayers and worship services. And for the last month and a half, they've been having a worship service. So the authorities can't come in and uh, take the family. 24 hours a day. So what you see right here is one minister passing the candle to another so that they continue. They're recruiting people. You can check out their, their website. They're especially asking for night owls. If anyone wants to come to help during the night hours. They can't be expelled. This, this family form of Mina can't be expelled because the authorities cannot, according to Dutch law, cannot come in to the sanctuary while prayers are being offered. It's not a new idea. In fact, it comes from ancient times. The idea that in the house of God, you are under the protection of God. That's why the most holy place, the holiest of place, resemble the place of safety. And why it's become known, even in the secular world, that sanctuary means a safe haven, a harbor. But where does the idea come from in ancient times? That's what I want you to study with me as we begin a conversation about sanctuary. So I want you to go with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 25. <clears throat> now today, and beginning today and for the rest of the, of the weeks of December, we're going to do some heavy-duty Bible lifting. So here's me challenging you to bring your Bible. Now, I get it. Some of you guys are like, I don't want to carry it. Okay, that's fine. Maybe you have it in your phone, whatever. I don't care. But open up a Bible and read it for yourself. Because, because to, to ignore the Bible is to be ignorant of God's Word. And there's no point in seeking God's presence while trying to be ignorant about His Word. So I'm going to challenge you to bring your Bible and open up your Bible. If you didn't bring one today, there's one right in the pew in front of you. That's what it's there for, for you to access it. Or, or, or open it up on your smartphones if you need to. But go to Exodus chapter 25. So I'm going to wait for you to go there. Are you there? Okay, if you're not there, don't stare at me. Get your Bible. I'm not here to put on a show. I'm here to point you to the Bible. So if you're going to look at me, I'm just going to do this. <laughs> Exodus chapter 1. I mean, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 25. A few years ago, about a year and a half ago, we spent a lot of time in Exodus. And it's a fantastic book. But most people think that the Exodus is about God taking the people out of Egypt. And it is that. You saw the Prince of Egypt. You're excited about the soundtrack. It is about that. But it's not just that. In fact, we spent a lot of time discussing how God formed a relationship with his people and how he brought them to Mount Sinai and how he gave them the Ten Commandments. Seminal in all Christendom. But then from there, we usually skip over to their journey to the Promised Land and to whatever happens after. And the chapters that we skip over, I know because I did it myself in our series, is right here. Exodus chapter 25. So I want you to read it with me. Are you there? If you're there, say amen. amen. And if you said amen and you're not there, guess what? You are lying in the house of God. So you know what happens. The rest of y'all just... Whoop. Safe place from authorities. But the heavenly authority, watch out. So here we go. Exodus chapter 25, beginning with verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. A what? An offering. A what? An offering. A what? An offering. Oh, an offering. I had to do it again, yes. <laughs> 
an offering. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from me for each from each man whose heart prompts him to give. See, God begins to establish a relationship. We know Exodus is about bringing God's people who are descendants of Abraham, descendants of Joseph, descendants of Israel, as it were, coming into a full peoplehood, into a nation. And when he brings them out of Egypt, delivers them, they have a sense of who God is, but not an accurate sense of who God is. They've been following sort of their parents' teaching, but they don't fully understand God. What they really want, if you read all of the last parts of Genesis and Exodus, what they really want is just to be delivered from their circumstances. Get me out of this mess. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and they said, we're tired, we're suffering, we work, we work, we work. Get us, somebody get us out of this mess. And the Bible tells us that God chooses Moses and says, I have heard my people's concerns, and I am sending you to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt. Yes, amen? We're agreement here? Yes. And so we believe that this is, this is the story of God's rescuing them and then sending them to the promised land. But what it actually is, is God reclaiming his relationship with them, as I'm about to show you. And God says to the people, tell them to bring me an offering. A what? An offering. Listen, God creates this relationship between us and him. Most of us have come to believe that essentially God is there to do something for us. In fact, you may have come today to church and are sitting there right now looking at me, hoping that God will do something for you. The way this normally sounds like is, I'm going to go to church, see if I get a blessing. See if the pastor's sermon does something for me. I'm going to see if the music is uplifting to me. See, we come with an expectation that we will receive something, which is true. But if you read the text, God has helped us understand that this is not just a one-way street. He says, bring me an offering. But he phrases it this way. Bring an offering from every man whose heart prompts him to give. You know what an offering is? It is an expression of our relationship with God. It is an expression. God has, and we will talk about that later, times when he says, this belongs to me, that that is mine. But an offering, an offering is God inviting you to recognize who he is in relationship to you. So he says, bring me an offering if your heart tells you to do so. That's what offerings are. Expressions of our hearts towards God. It's a revelation of what our hearts feel about God. You follow me so far? Yes? Okay. So God says, bring me an offering. He has brought them out. Now you know because in, you know that Exodus 20 contains what? Hello, Christians. Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments, the singular, most significant piece of literature uh, in all Western civilization. It is through those Ten Commandments that just about every Western civilization has laid their understanding of what it means to be a society. Exodus 20. That just happened. God is talking with Moses on the mountain. I'm going to go quickly, but I expect you to follow. You're bright. God is talking with Moses on the mountain, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, explains them. But then he says, before I hand them over to you, the tablets written with God's own hand, he says, I want you to do this. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. A what? An offering. He says, tell the Israelites whoever's ever heart is prompted to get to bring me an offering. Now let's read. What kind of offering? He says, these are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze. 
blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen. Goat hair, ram skins dyed red, and hides of sea cows, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and other gems. What kind of offering is God asking for, at least in this instance? What type of offering? I don't know if you can tell, but gold, silver, and bronze, fine linen, onyx, and precious stones is what kind of offering? Something valuable. Something of value. Yes? Gold. God says, if it matters to you, if your, prompt, if your, if your heart prompts you to give, then give something of value. See, over the course of time, as we begin to unpack God's relationship with us, we think offering means some pittance, some nickels we throw. We think offering, when you relationship to God, is like when you're going down the street, you see a homeless person, and you look for loose change, and you're like, okay, I'll give some. But that is not what it is. Amen. Offering is an expression of what our heart says God is valued at. It's a valuation of God. So he says, if you value me, you don't have to, but if you value me, gold, silver, bronze, precious stone, fine linen, these yarns, these purple yarns, that, that's, that's royal yarn. It, it's, meant, it's expensive stuff. God asks for expensive things. It's kind of unusual. It's kind of unusual, but this is how he begins the conversation. He invites them to bring special things. Acacia wood, also very difficult to find. Olive oil, very precious, and fragrant things, and, and onyx stones and other gems. But why? See, when you read it, and as I'm reading it to you, you're like, yeah, that doesn't sound odd to me. But when was the last time you gave gold <laughs> or precious stones as an offering? Or anything of value for that matter? Ask yourself. But God here asks and he says, I want you, but here's why. Listen, follow along with me. Bring these special offerings of value and then... Verse 25, 8, are you there? 25, 8, say yeah, amen. amen. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. In the biblical narrative, this word is introduced. Have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Now, you may have read this before, and you may have thought about it before, or, or maybe not. But, it, but in most conversations about God's relationship to us and about God's establishing his purposes, this little phrase right here usually doesn't register. It doesn't register because we fail to connect what God is actually doing here. And what I'm super excited about doing here is helping us reclaim our true identity as people of the sanctuary. Here's why. Because for, for millions of people around the world, in, in 25 days, and my, my son has a Lego advent calendar. Can you believe it? A Lego advent calendar. He's counting on the days for the arrival of the baby Jesus, the arrival of the great Emmanuel, God with us. We celebrate this idea that God wants to be with us, but his desire to be with us didn't be Again, there. No, it started way back here. See it? In fact, it goes way back before that. It begins at creation. At creation, which we've discovered here and studied here, God says to himself, let us make men in our image, right? Let us make men in our image. And, and when he creates us, in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, when he creates us, we, the Bible says we are his, his, his works of art. When he creates us, he begins a relationship with us. He placed us in the garden, and there he communed with us. 
And we have this beautiful theology about the Trinity of God in community with itself and then in community with us. And one of my favorite verses, we studied this, one of my favorite verses in Genesis is this picture. The Bible says that in the cool of the day, man walked with God. That in the cool of the day, when the sun was setting, when the work was done, man walked with God. I love that phrase. I don't know about you, but when my wife and I finally get home after a day's work, we just want to like sit and stare at each other and talk a little bit. Because otherwise, life is like this, right? And I just, just sit down for a second, catch your breath, and reconnect. And the Bible tells us that in the beginning in the garden, God put man there to, to work the soul. But in the cool of the day, each and every day, they would walk together and have a conversation. Don't you love that? I do. I certainly dream and think about this, this, this possibility that you and I could talk with God regularly. I, I know that most people want to know the will of God. I certainly do. What should I do? What can I do? What, what's the right decision? And what the Bible tells us is that in the beginning, we could have those conversations directly with God because God was with us. God was with us. You see it? God's original intention is that we would be together with us. But sin messed that all up, as you know. We walked away from God, though he said, don't do it. Don't eat of the tree, for you will surely die, which means you will be separated from me. And the ultimate separation from, from God is death, because God is life. The source of life and death takes that away. And God said, don't do it. And man chose to do it anyway, but God said, I, I, I'm not okay with that. I don't want to lose you. So the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 that God began what we call a plan of salvation. He said, I'm going to find a way to bridge this gap, to cross this gap. It's, it's laid out there. And for the rest of the time in ancient history, from Genesis up into what we're reading right now, God has been pursuing the hearts of people, men and women, by saying, I want to reconnect with you because God's desire is to be with us. Now, that may not shock you, but it should. In this moment here, God has reclaimed his people, Israelites, and he says, bring me an offering. And then with this offering, because God doesn't need the gold for himself. But he says, with this offering that you give from your heart, build me a house among you so that I can live there. And what we have right here in Exodus 25, verse 8, is a physical, social, emotional, and spiritual expression of God's desire to be with us. See, what we celebrate at Christmas time is the fulfillment of this desire. But that's just part of the story, it's not even the end. God has always wanted to be with us. Listen, you, you, you can't leave here today and not have this written all over your hearts and your head that God wants to be with you. We are separated from him for many reasons, but at the depth of God's heart, he desires to be with you, and there is nothing that can stop him. Imagine this. Imagine this. The God of the universe, who could make his home wherever he wants, wherever he should please, he asked to have a house built right in the middle of us. See, for the Israelites, this was a mind-blowing moment. For up until this point, they knew of the God of their fathers, 
They knew of the idea of God. And, and, and here in Exodus chapter 20, they have seen the power of God. They finally get to the mountain. They've crossed the Red Sea. They finally get to the mountain. And they send Moses up because they can't go themselves. And a cloud descends. And the presence of God is there. But this presence of God is unlike anything they could imagine. In fact, Exodus tells us that they live in fear. They're worried. They're fearful for their lives because it's like thunder. It's like fire. It's all. The God of the universe is touching down. They're afraid. But in that moment, God, through that power and in the mountain, says to Moses, I want to be with you. I want to be with them. So make me a house, a sanctuary, so that I can be there. In Adventist theology, we call this the nearness of God. That God wants to be near us. I love that picture. That he wants to be around. That he wants that cool of the day experience. So God tells Moses, build me a sanctuary. Build me a house among you. And if you've seen the diagrams and if you've thought about this, heard this before, God's intention is that he would be at the center of the community. And for the rest of time, we have tried to build our churches and our sanctuaries, our, our, our modern-day replicas of this, this, this instruction and center around our world around the sanctuary, the presence of God. That God would be at the center, the definer of who we are in our identity. God says, build me a sanctuary. And, and, and we're going to talk about sanctuary because, see, in the sanctuary, we find not only this beautiful expression, but we also have the promise of the arrival of the baby Jesus. It's all going to connect from Genesis to Revelation. Because in Revelation, at the very end, what does God finally do? What does he finally hope to accomplish? What do we live in, in, in hopes for in the second coming? That when he comes again the second time, he's going to erase all separation. Get rid of death, mourning, and sadness. And he says in his words, and I will be your God and you will be my people. We will finally be together forever. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. That's the heart and the desire of God. He wants to be with us. Now to me, that's exciting. Because I'm a sinful man. And the thought that God would want to be with me is mind-blowing. God don't deserve his presence. And the Israelites didn't deserve it either. They were a mess, a hot mess. You want to know how hot? Here's what happens. Moses is in the mountain. God has written the Ten Commandments, but he says, before I give them to you, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do with them. God says, make me a sanctuary. And then he begins to describe exactly what to do. You've got to know this before you live today. God is a God of order. Of what? Order. order. God is not like a whatever. That's not God. It never has been. God is a God of order. So he tells Moses, and he begins to read, look, I saw the Bible. Then build me a sanctuary and make the tabernacle and all the furnishings exactly like the pattern that I will show you. God says, I'm going to tell you exactly how, and I want you to do it exactly as I say. And then he begins to describe, have them make a chest of acacia wood, um, two and a half cubits long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit and a half high, and overlay with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it, cast four gold rings for it, fasten them to four feet, with two rings on one side and two rings on the other, and make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and insert the poles into the rings of the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put the ark of the testimony, that put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Capital T for testimony. 
Do you see how God is? He's creating a little manual here for Moses to follow. And he's very, very clear and precise. This high, this tall, this wide, made of this, overlaid like this, and specifically how to create it. God is very detail-oriented because he's a God of order. And what he says and what he does has a plan and a purpose for it. He's not a God of whatever, willy-nilly, sure, I don't care. God is concerned. And his ultimate concern is to be with us. So he tells Moses, make miss. You guys know what this is called, right? Anybody? The Ark of the Covenant. So uh, no Raiders of the Lost Ark fans? All right, fine. The, the idea of the Ark is a concept that transcends Christianity now. It's in popular culture. The Ark. That, that it's a special container and that something precious is inside. And we know what that is. God says, build it this way. And inside, what are you going to put there? The testimony with a capital T. What does that mean? <laughs> Bueller. <laughs> Bueller. Okay. <laughs> we got a problem, family. We've got a problem. If you are unaware of what the Bible says here, you are going to lose your way. There's no way we're going to be able to stand what's coming if you don't know what the Word of God says. So I beg you, read the Bible. God says the testimony, the Ten Commandments, you're going to place in the ark. For the next few weeks, we're going to talk about what God does in creating this sanctuary. The physical nature of it, but also the spiritual, emotional, and social connection. God says here, I'm, I can't read it all for you, but I, I beg you to read it. Go home. I know you're going to do nothing this afternoon except sleep. So before you fall asleep, read a few verses here. The ark, then he makes the table, then he makes the lampstand. I know some of you guys have studied this somewhere in some class in college or high school or some Bible study, but you have no idea what it means. But I want you to pay attention once again, because God is trying to awaken us to our true identity. God says, build me an ark, then a table, then a lampstand. Then he talks about the tabernacle, Exodus 26. I'm going fast because you got to keep up. And it says, build me this tabernacle, this enclosure, and these rooms. And he gives specific dimensions. And if you want to see what it looks like, just Google it or YouTube it. There's plenty of people who put it, uh, who have made 3D renditions and physical renditions. That's not really important. It's not why I brought it here. I want you to understand the symbolism and the mission of what God is trying to convey. He says, make this tabernacle, make this, this tent, this room. This is what my house will be made up. And, and there are two rooms, as you know, the holy place and the most holy place. And, be, and around them, there's what we call a courtyard, an open area, and that's enclosed with a much larger uh, enclosure. And God gives detail, very detailed specifications for the size, the height, the materials, how exactly everything's to be made, especially for the articles that are included in God's house. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a remodeling done or built your own house or moved into a new house. And I don't know if you're the kind of person that says, yeah, fill it up with whatever, or the kind of person that's very specific. Maybe you design some stuff, your own furniture, like my good friend here. <laughs> but God is specific because he is trying to tell us something. Over the next few weeks, we're going to try to uncover what it is that he's trying to say. But for today... There's something that I want you to understand. That when God places these things, He's trying to establish a pathway and a pattern for us to be reconnected to Him. Because His deepest desire is to be with us. God with us. And what we have in Jesus is 
prophesied right here. The arrival of the baby Jesus is prophesied in what is happening in the construction and in the usage of this sanctuary. So, in Exodus chapter 25, God tells them to do this. And then Moses is so excited. He's like, I'm going to go down and tell the people what God has said. As you know, I'm going to go real quickly here. God, Moses is coming down, and he has a party that's going on. He's like, I wonder what's happening. While Moses was up there for 40 days, 40 days, the people said, that dude is gone. He's never coming back. So they decided to party. You guys know this. You know the story. They melted all their earrings and stuff, and they made a golden calf and they danced and, and Moses is coming down from being in the presence of God holding the testimony of God in his hands his handwritten works and he finds the people messing around what a shame right don't you think it's, it's, it's pretty sad they couldn't wait 40 days 40 days and you know the story Moses is upset he throws the tablets down and, and he does something really phenomenal he is so consumed with fire by the way God knows that and he tells Moses this before he leaves the mountains, he says, Moses, the people are partying on there. They couldn't wait 40 days. So you move over to the side. I'm going to destroy them all. And Moses says, no, 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 please, please, don't, don't destroy them all. Give them time. Let me go talk to them. And when he goes down, Moses finds them dancing around the golden calf. He's so mad, he throws the tablets down. And then he melts the, the calf down and then dries up the metal, pulverizes it, puts it in water, and makes everybody drink it. And then he tells them who is going to stand up for God. And all the Levites rush to his side. These are priests, Levites, the, the tribal Levite. And he says, you guys put on, you can read it for yourself. I'm making this up. Check it out right there. Uh, he, he says, put on the swords. And this day they go through and they slaughter people, those who were wicked. God decimates his own people. It's, it's, it's weird. Why? Because they are laughing in the, in the face of a sacred God. Can you imagine that the God of the universe, of galaxies, of, of stars and planets, wants to come live right here? And we are unconcerned and could care less. It made God so mad. But he relents. Moses instead takes out some of the people. And then he comes back to God and says, God, please, please forgive us. And you know that God wants to be with us so much that he does forgive us. The Bible tells us in Exodus 35 that says, okay, God, where were we? And again, he says, okay, bring me another set of tablets. I'm going to give him, I'm going to have to write them again. Can you imagine asking God, uh, I broke him. Can you do that again? Can you imagine that? Oh, God. I, the very holy thing that you give me specific instructions that it's going to be the testimony, the expression of your will, the thing that will set nations and kingdoms and peoples and rule the world. I broke that. Can you do it again? But God in his great patience, he does. Why? Because he wants to be with us. And in those tablets, he pours himself and they become the physical expression of the character of God. Wow. And God says, take me in physical form and put it in this special place and set it in the middle of the camp. I think that's amazing. That God, the infinite God, places himself into a tiny spot in the middle of the desert just so he can be with us. Don't you think that's cool? See, You'll never understand what Jesus is doing when he arrives. 
if you don't understand God's desire here in the sanctuary. That doesn't make sense unless you understand what he's doing here. God loves us so much for God so loved, right Max? For God so loved, the, so loved the world that he sent his only son because God has always loved the world, because God has always loved you, because God has always wanted to be with you and nothing is going to stop him. God asked him to build the sanctuary. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I want you to do it. He begins with the ark, then he says these elements, and then this is the closure, and then outside of that, see, he begins in the center, and then he works his way out in these in widening circles. And each of these will serve a function, as you'll read. If you read, if you take the time to read the book of Leviticus, which nobody ever reads unless you're studying about what not to eat, if you read that, you will find that God places these things and he tells the Levites there are certain things you're going to do. This is how you're going to use. In fact, the word is minister. This is how you will conduct services in my sanctuary. And everything that God has given us to do is a physical, social, relational, and spiritual expression of his relationship with us. So, I want you to take this with you before we're done today. God creates... Today we're just, for a second, we're going we're gonna to talk about the first apartment, what we call the holy place. For just like we're almost done. God creates this thing, this, this beautiful expression. You see, what's happening in the courtyard is something that you're very familiar with. You're Christian, you know that Jesus Christ came, was born, but he came to what? To die, to give his life as a ransom for many. For God so gave his only son, right? And Jesus comes, that we know, and, and that is represented in the courtyard by the altar of sacrifice. Who's the greatest sacrifice? Who's the lamb who takes away this under the world? Jesus, of Jesus. There's no other name under heaven and earth by which man can be saved. Jesus, that we know. We know that Jesus comes to give his life and then the labor, which is also out in the courtyard, Jesus comes to cleanse us from our sins because Jesus said, Jesus said, though your sins be red as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. That we know we're familiar, but what we're not as familiar with is what happens inside the first apartment. Because see, if you were there, and as God lays this out in Leviticus, as we're going to go later, God says, when you are guilty, when you bring an offering, an offering, an expression of your relationship with me, sometimes that offering was an offering of gratitude because God is so good. But sometimes that offering was an offering of repentance, what we call the guilt offering. I said, God, I violated your promises. I messed up, and I am sorry. And I would bring something of value to signify how sorry I was. And I would bring it, and we, together as a people, would present these offerings. And it would begin from the outside, and the animals or the grains were presented and they were sacrificed and they were killed and the blood was used and then they would bring the blood and, and, and through the labor wash their hands but bring some of the blood into the first apartment and in that first apartment the priests would carry this bowl of blood which signifies your sins my sins our, our problems and they would sprinkle it in God's house can you imagine someone going to your house in your living room and throwing blood up on the walls? How does that sound like to you? And if you read here, you will see that the, that the inside of this room is, is beautiful, it's precious, it's radiant. It's filled with gold, precious things. And yet, the dirty blood of, a, of an animal not just dirty, the way that sin, that, that blood stains, but, but, but blood that represents sin, dirt, evil, immorality, hurtful words, judgmentalism, carelessness, violence, all that is coming in to the house of God and being splattered all over. But in that room, there are three things. It's right there, Exodus. Right there in Exodus. Read it for yourself. It's 39 and 40. I'm just going to go quickly because we're almost done. 
There are three things in there that I want you to call your attention. One is the table of showbread. Have you ever heard that phrase? Table of showbread. And show is S-H-E-W. Table of showbread. Uh, God says, make a table and make 12 loaves, one representing each for the tribe of Israel, and have these loaves perpetually made and in the presence. Table of showbread. The other is a candelabra, a seven-pointed lamp. Specific in his detail. Make it this way, in this shape, representing these things uh, out of this metal and in this fashion. And then there's an altar, a gold altar of incense. There are three things in there. And each of these things symbolizes something that is important for you and me to understand. The first one should be fairly obvious. The bread, the altar, the table of the showbread represents what? Jesus, who says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry. Jesus offers himself up. Jesus says, take this, this bread and communion that we'll celebrate at the end of our series. He says, take this bread. This is my body broken for you. You see, all throughout the biblical imagery, Jesus is the bread. Do you know why? Because Jesus represents God's provision for us. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus represents God's provision. Here, I want you to connect the dots. Seventh-day Adventist Christians, I want you to connect the dots. In the very beginning, the Bible tells us in John that it was through Jesus, through the power of Jesus, that the earth was provided for us because through him, through the word of God, which is Jesus, the word made flesh, everything was created. Jesus is the provider. Jesus is the what? The provider. He provides for us. That's why the bread is presently and constantly in that first room. As our sins, as our concerns, as our worries, even as our praises come, Jesus' presence there, continually present, says, I will provide for you. Amen? Don't you think that's amazing? Especially in this season, because I know, it's, I know it's December, and for some of you guys, some of you guys are waiting for gifts. Others don't know if we're going to be able to afford gifts. Even in this season, I know it's tough. The world is full of commerciality, but the truth is, most of us are just running into debt, and we don't know if we'll have enough. But Jesus Jesus says, I will provide. I will provide. The table of showbread is there. Jesus is the provider. Next, we have the lampstand. Seven, perfect number and, 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 and Bible numbers. And over and over, if you look at your Bible, as you connect these dots, as you hear me preach about these things throughout time, you'll see that the Holy Spirit is what's represented there in the light of the lamp. It's the same imagery that's used by Jesus in the New Testament, the same imagery that's used by Paul and the other writers, that the Holy Spirit lights the way. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Thy word shows me the way. Jesus says, and I will send the Holy Spirit, and he will reveal to you all things, teaching you where to go, explaining to you everything that I have taught you, and will be with you always. That's why that lamp had to be lit continually. You see, a lot of us here in modern-day Christianity ignore the Old Testament in favor of the cooler and hipper New Testament. And we think that somehow in there we will find new answers for things that God didn't know about, didn't concern. But that's so not true. For God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is the God who was and is and... Come on, family. Don't you believe in that God? See, I think we have to believe in that God. Otherwise, we are doomed. Look around your world. It's going to pieces. Right here in front of us, in our own families, and in our church. So today, I choose to believe in that God who provides and who lights the way. This past week, I've been overwhelmed by how uncertain my life feels. 
And God says, let me light the way. And the last piece is an altar of gold where incense burns. And if you read the scripture, both in the Old Testament and all the way through the New Testament, incense represents our prayers to God. That they cannot rise on their own, but they're mixed together with the righteousness of Jesus. And God invites us to commune with him. You see it? He provides a way to get past the distance. And in this room, the ministry of reconciliation takes place. God says, come back to me. I will provide for you. I will guide for you. And we can walk in the cool of the day. I love that. I'm so excited about talking about the sanctuary this month. And I want to invite you to come back. Next week, I'm going to give you something to write down so you won't forget it. I just didn't want to scare you the first time. And I know you were thinking, but you're going to learn a lot and you're going to be immersed in this idea of the sanctuary because it's what lays the foundation for who we are as a people, why we exist, why Seventh-day Adventism was born, and why it matters. I want you to come and study with me. And, and, and your reading for today, just go right there, Exodus. Read from Exodus 25 to the end. It's a lot. And if you're super daring, go to Leviticus. Blow your mind. But God is inviting us in this season as the band comes back and gets ready to sing our closing song. It's not just about the baby born. God has always desired and he's always been providing a way. God has always been trying to reconcile us to himself. Why? Because he desperately wants to be with us. But you know what's interesting, family? He gives this ministry to you and me. And it's why reconciliation matters to you and me. And it's why we were put on this earth not to fight or quarrel, not to have divisions, but to find a way to commune. In this uh, holy room, we find this expression, relying on the provision of God, relying on the wisdom and the counsel of the Holy Spirit, we were meant to commune together with Jesus and with each other. The sanctuary is not an individual person experience. We would go there as a community. And if you read Exodus, you'll see that when God finally fills the room and his glory comes, it burns up the sacrifice and the people bow down and they worship recognizing the miracle that it is that the God of the universe crosses every boundary so he can be with us. So I want to encourage you today, wherever you are, that God is still the provider. Jesus is still the provider. That the Holy Spirit is still willing to light the way. And that in our praises and in our prayers, we commune with God. Shall we stand and sing glory to God for this great miracle that God wants to be with us.